0: God is good in every season of life. He is promised to be faithful, He's promised to be true. We may not go through life unscathed, but we know that we have hope in Him that transcends this world, but in this present world, He walks with us. And discerning His presence in times like this uh, brings us great hope and joy. But perhaps you here tonight, and you saying, Stu, my time, the time in my life right now is difficult, hard to discern the presence of God, I pray this evening for such a person that you would sense the faithfulness of the Lord in His Word to you. That this Word has stood the test of time, as God has promised that He will be His people until the end of time. He is with you even when you can't feel it. And I speak this Word tonight because I know that revival times of times of emotion, times of feeling. I have no problem with emotional feeling. I love emotion and feeling. Uh, My church that I come from, they celebrate internally They say amen on the inside, and uh, sometimes I stand there and I say, Lord, I think it's a funny thing that you brought me to such a people. So our emotions are not necessarily expressed in the same way, but our emotions are not only way to know the truth that comes from God. And so in times of testing, this is just free of charge, this is not the message, and in times of trial, in times where God feels distant, fall into His Word, His word that is certain and sure, it is a firm foundation upon which we build our lives. And so I return, you know, uh, uh, every session I've spoken on this of the, the critical imperative nature of the Word of God that makes revivals not the end to an experience, but a part of the journey in which we discern the presence of God with us in every season. If I can invite you as the church to make this a priority again... I have a very strong conviction that the Word of God ought to be studied together. It ought to be read together. It ought to be heard together. And it ought to be taught in a setting where we come together. And it cannot just be on Revival Week. And it cannot just be on a Sunday morning. And it cannot just be from your pastors. It must be that we feast upon this Word together for ourselves and with brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? On that note, with you turn with me to Colossians chapter... Let me see my notes where I am tonight. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read the first 11 verses from Colossians chapter 3, after which I will pray, and you may be seated. Since then, you have been raised with Christ... rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, the Word of the Lord. Father God, this evening I thank you for the church gathered before you. I stand before you again as your spokesperson. I recognize that your spirit does not come and render me a robot or simply a loudspeaker. Your spirit works in the very ordinary person that I am, using the faculties you've given me, the abilities you've given me, and even the thoughts you've given me. But it is an amazing thing that throughout history you have shown a divine preference to use ordinary people to do the work of the kingdom. I pray this evening that you would remove the false perspective amongst us that only some are called to do the work of the kingdom. I pray that you would remind us this evening that if we confess you as the Lord Jesus Christ, it is by your Spirit working in and through who we are, in our personalities, with our faculties, with the gifts and the graces that you've given us, that we are able to represent you in this world, for you delight in who you've made us to be. May we find joy in being who you've made us to be. This evening, as we hear your Word, may we hear it with open ears and open hearts may we not simply seek more information, but may we desire to experience the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit that leads and guides us in all truth, so that revival will not be the end to an experience, but indeed a catalyst for a life lived by the joy and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that work within us. So now, Father, I stand humbly before you. I ask that you would remove from me the temptation to want to be great so that I would speak that which is true. May you be lifted up. May your agenda take place. And thank you so much for the wonderful gift and the calling upon my life. For this I give you thanks in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Our world is defined by the desire for more. We don't seem to be satisfied. Every commercial seems to indicate that unless you get that new model of something, like that new iPhone, what are we now up to, 10? (laughs) 10? Who has the iPhone 10? It's probably the people on the right-hand side again. (laughs) But if we pay close attention to the world's rhetoric, it's consistently telling us that we do not have enough. That in fact, we need more in order to be better. We've bought into this on many levels. The information we receive, we don't even discern anymore. All we think is, man, I got to keep up again. (laughs) I don't have what I need once again. It is amazing to me how easy this happens in my life. It is amazing how that I can move from contentment to want in zero to 60 seconds. You know, like a car goes from zero to 100. It's amazing how easy my life can be interrupted by this incessant thing that says to me, "Stew, there has to be more, there has to be more, there has to be more, and so pursue, do, pursuit is the way in which we live our lives. I have this image of people these days as, as ones who are constantly reaching beyond their grasp. The moment that they get more money, they spend more money. And so the grasp gets higher. The moment we have free time, we fill those time, and so we have less time, and then we have to work more to get more time off, which we fill, and then we keep going. It seems to me that the incessant rhetoric of our world that says to us we are never going to be satisfied should never be received in the church as true. For this is what the Apostle Paul will tell us, that in Christ we have all we need. Now I want to speak a contrary message to a church that needs to be attentive to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. People who live as Christians following Jesus that do not apprehend how final and complete His work has been on their behalf will try in their spiritual lives to do what Jesus has already accomplished for them. Such people uh, become exhausted at the work of religion. Such people become empty pharisaic at times. Such people become very despondent. But the ones amongst us who responds to Jesus in faith and sees in Him the work is completed on our behalf, lives the kind of life defined by thanksgiving, praise, and joy. This evening, as I reflected upon what to preach to you on the penultimate night of our revival together, I turned to Colossians because it is one of the books in the Bible that I really enjoy studying. Before I give you some points about the text, I want to suggest to you that there's a context that informs why our text is located. That context is defined by the reality that the early church was experiencing. The early church, you must understand, didn't consider themselves Christian as we consider Christianity today, but in many ways they saw themselves to have opened their eyes as Jewish believers to the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. But as the Holy Spirit, as I preached the other night on the book of Acts, and wasn't that good, thanks be to God, that the Holy Spirit filled those apostles so much that they reached out beyond themselves. Remember this? They reached on beyond themselves. And even as they scattered from Jerusalem, they started to spread the gospel message. And Gentiles became converted. And Peter became transformed from having a hatred or a resentment to the Gentiles to seeing that, man, God is even pouring out His Holy Spirit on people that they didn't think he would have anything to do with. You know, I love Jesus because Jesus always surprises us with his capacity to transform lives that we may have even given up on. Are you not glad he does that? Some of us would not be here tonight if he didn't. He wasn't in the business of surprising us. If we told some of the stories amongst us tonight, some of us would be, when people looked at me, they never thought that God would get a hold of my life. But here I sit tonight, transformed by the grace of God, because this God who fills his people with his spirit is the god who stands with arms wide open welcoming the prodigal home and says to the church there's always been room for you here he is the god that pursues the one and leaves the 99 because they are right as long as the 99 don't start to complain (laughs) but as the spirit moves and as he incorporates more and more people into the life of the church Through the proclamation of the apostles, problems started to arise in the early church. You know, there's this false perspective when we talk about returning to the church in Acts that they were perfect. (laughs) The early church was never perfect. The only person perfect in the church, of course, is Jesus. (laughs) Uh, The early church had its struggles. They had problems with how to assimilate different cultures stay with me for a second think of it this way when Jesus became Lord of these people in a culture in which children were put to one side and women were put to another side and Gentiles were put to another side and Jews were put to another side and they started to meet in the homes of believers because Jewish temple gods said you can't come in here they were being so revolutionary they were bringing people together that never worshiped together before you want to tell me there was no problems they had all kinds of challenges. What do we do with this new community? What do we do with this growing community in which people are a part of this thing now that had never been before? Not only uh, did they experience the pressure from Rome and the persecution from the emperor in their day, but the, 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 the most threatening pressure for the church, I think, even today, is not the external ones, it's the internal ones, you know, it's, it's, it's the threat from within that is often very devastating within the church. You see, the church has always experienced external threats. We know that historically. We know that biblically. But if you study the Bible close, it is often within the church where the threat comes and that threat can create incredible division. So in the Colossian community, there's a group that is defined as, as those who are false teachers, now, in all my studies on this, I read a good couple of commentaries trying to nail down who these people were. We pick up pieces, bits and pieces, as we study the, the, the letter, that, that these were people who seemed to say to Gentile converts to Jesus Christ that in some senses they, may become, they must become Jewish in order to be really a part of the family. Some of them were saying, you need to be enlightened more and you need to have spiritual visions in order to really be on the inside. We do not know if they were really Gnostic. Now, let me pause for a second. Are you still with me here? Uh, we don't know if they were really Gnostic, but Gnosticism was a, uh, you know, an early-century heresy. And at the heart of Gnosticism was this idea that the spirit and the flesh were two different things and never intertwined with one another, so much so that Gnosticism or Gnostics believed that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he was never really human. Gnosticism was a very dangerous thing because we as Christians affirm to this very day that Christ, being all of who God wanted him to be, became all of who we are, so that when he died, he truly understood our pain and our sin, and when he was raised, we share in that very same hope within him. which was prevalent in the early church, threatened the belief system of this early community. And so we have a church described in colossians as a church facing people who are teaching them that Jesus was just not enough. And you know, <laughs> those people are still around, still teaching the same thing. And there are many people as Christians that receive such a message and they begin to try and fulfill what has already been done for them. What what does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like uh, a religious zeal and fervor. Such people are incredibly insecure because they feel an emptiness that they try to fill in their own strength. And yet the hope that we have in Christ is that what he has done is all that needs to be done. The fullness in him becomes our fullness. You see, the longings of our heart cannot be met in other people. It can only be met in Christ. And the church needs to wrestle deeply with what it means to be Christian. Because if the scripture is true, it says all we truly need is him. But we don't live that way. We don't live that way. We do not live as if the only person we truly need to live the life God has called us to live is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So here's what's happened. Here's here's what happens when you you live without insecurity. You tend to look at other people for what only Christ can offer you. Someone should say amen. That's not in my notes, but that was good. I'm blaming the Holy Spirit for that. Let me put it to you in context. Uh, I counsel um, uh, people wanting to get married. You know, when they have stars in their eyes and rocks in their heads. When, when they look at each other, you know, and... <laughs> I'm so tired I forgot my main point. Okay. Let me just go with the illustration. And, 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 I, and, I, and I try to teach them, I try to teach them that, that you know, to get married is, is, is not just about the warm, fuzzy feeling. You with me? You know, it's not just about the, the, the affection in the moment. The, the people who scare me the most that sit in front of me when I do premarital counseling are, are those that say to me, we, 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 we just don't fight. <laughs> Ooh, I increase my sessions by 10 more if that's what they say to me. And I say my objective is to get you to fight, because if you care about anybody, you're going to realize they don't think the way you think on everything. There's going to be issues. So how about we learn what love means in terms of how to love the other when the other doesn't do what you want them to do? But the one thing that I teach in premarital counseling that I think is a very essential thing that... that, that, that we should grapple with is that if you look to the other person you're married to as the one who's going to fulfill all that you want them to be I'm going to tell you right now ladies and gentlemen you're going to be pretty miserable some of you didn't know you came here for premarital counsel and some of you married ones are moving away from each other as I'm preaching this but here's what I'm trying to say If Christ is not sufficient, you try to fill your life with the expectations you place on other people that can never do for you what God has offered you already. So if it's not a person, some people become obsessed with a career. Some people become obsessed with their children. Some people hinge their identity and their sense of value on their accomplishments. Some people become super religious because they believe by being super religious maybe the deep knowing emptiness within them will go away. Some people turn to alcohol, some people turn to drugs, but the more subtle thing is is that we make good things, idols in our life because the idols are not going to fulfill what only the true and living God can fulfill. And anything that we overlove instead of Christ who is sufficient becomes that idol in our lives. Listen, let me say it to you this way we can identify all kinds of sins but the biggest challenge in the church today is not to worship good things in inordinate ways it is not to worship things out of what they more than we should be worshiping him. we can worship our spouses we can worship our careers we can worship our religion we can worship things that doesn't matter to god but only when jesus becomes the center point of our worship the sufficiency of our life are we able to love our spouses as we ought to? Are we able to do our jobs without it becoming our life? Are we able to hold on closely to things without it becoming an idol? And God's people say, Amen. Oh, well, i got to get back to my notes. So Colossi. Get circumcised, then you're in. Have mystical visions, then you're in. The Apostle Paul responds and he says, For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity, that is God, dwells in bodily form. You see why he says it now? Because Gnostics don't like the idea that it was truly a body. And he's saying this sufficient Christ became just like us. And in him, listen to this. I want you to hear it because it needs to fall deep within our hearts. You have been made complete. (laughs) Eugene Peterson in the paraphrase says it this way. Everything of God gets expressed in him. So you can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope a microscope or your horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without Him. When you come to Him, that fullness comes together for you too. His power extends over everything. When I moved to Canada, I left home about a year and a half after my family was killed in an accident. I had a sense that God was calling me. When people ask me today, what motivated you to go to Calgary... I say 10% hope that God was leading and 90% ignorance. I had no idea how cold Calgary would be. I've told this story many times, but it's worth a laugh. Cool runnings makes me cry. It is not a funny movie to me. Because I lived that reality. I did not know that your tears could freeze. Uh, I did not know that it can get so cold that you can't even literally cry. But it's amazing how your heart warms up when you meet a pretty lady. And I did a Bible study. You see, I was smart. I thought, I'm alone, I'm lonely. Let's have a Bible study. That's a good way to meet some, some, some friends. I wasn't looking for a girlfriend. Please, please, please. I had noble intentions. But I couldn't help uh, but notice this beautiful blue-eyed blonde. Now, I've got to say it this way. She saw me and she was smitten. She, <laughs> she, she took one look at this black Adonis and thought, oh man. God has provided, God has provided. Thanks be to Jesus. <laughs> She's not here so I can say anything I want. You have to understand my life, of course, I've now lost mom, dad, brother, and sister. Um, very young. Parents under the age of 50, my Brother was 17, my sister 11 years old. I just moved to this strange country. I joke about the cold, but the cold felt very, very bitter. In fact, when I think about that first winter here, I remember my loneliness. I remember my questioning. I remember whether I believed, uh, you know, I, I said to myself, do I believe that God is in all of this? The reality of their loss set in in a profound way. Uh, I cried and cried and cried. Got sick. They took me to the hospital. They couldn't find anything wrong with me other than give me a massive bill because I had no insurance. And uh, the first few months, every time I got on the phone talking to friends back home, I cried so bitterly I just wanted to go home. I asked God deep questions in that season. I asked him questions about meaning and purpose and whether he truly was leading me. And then I met my wife. Now, I've got to be honest with you, and I'm being very transparent. I've told this story before, and that's why I can tell it before you. I leaned into my wife in a very unhealthy way. I expected her to be the healer of the wounds, the fulfiller of my hopes, the one who would be my restoration and my joy. It was unfair expectations that my wife was never going to be able to live up to because there's only one who can do that. I testify to you that in the first few years of my marriage, I had to learn to love my wife for who she is. And the best way I could do that was to fall in love with the one who has always loved me first. As I grew closer to Jesus, I was able to love my wife in such a profound way that I did not overlove her. I know that sounds weird to say. Some of us sitting here, we're overloving people that just cannot live up to what we want them to be. And we're not choosing anybody because we have unfair expectations of what they're supposed to offer us. And I'm here to say to you that we're all human beings. You get married, it's one of the most refining, humbling things you can do in your life other than have children. You want to know that you're not as good as you thought you are? Get married. You want to know that you're not as patient as you thought you are? Get married. You want to know that your worldview can be challenged and rattled by somebody else who just does not see that you are right? Get married. But the wonderful thing is that as Christ becomes the center, the sufficiency of my life, I'm able to hold other things in proper perspective. I want you to understand how important this is for us as Christians. We have this inordinate tendency to try and fulfill what God has already given us. And so we ought to respond to the sufficiency of Christ... In worship, as the Apostle Paul says, and give thanks for God because in Christ he has given us life. He is the one we truly need. At the center of our being being, is this one who is called Jesus, who has given his very spirit to inhabit his people. Our response in faith to believing Jesus is enough. Every day of our life will bring liberation in other areas of our life. You will find yourself not wanting as much As you want right now. You know what's a scary thing for me as a pastor is how that Christians have become consumers of the church. The insufficiency is so rampant that churches must now compete with the fastest trends that are out there. You see this kind of idea of church is one that is driven not by the Spirit of God but by our insufficiency. It is driven by our need to obtain and to get things that we already know is not going to bring us the true joy. Listen, what your church needs is not a greater, bigger pastor, bigger building, better sound system, as all those things are good, or better worship leader. What the church needs is Christians who come so filled with the Spirit because they know Jesus has paid the price for them. And when they gather, (laughs) listen, listen, and when they gather it doesn't matter if you're singing a hymn or a chorus it doesn't matter if this band is good like they are tonight or terrible. It doesn't matter whether the seats are comfortable enough. You can't wait to give him thanks because you have found in him all that you need. And you praise him from deep within your being. You give him thanks. You know what worship services ought to be defined by? By thanksgiving. You know what worship service ought to be? A moment in which we just pause and say, he has paid it all. Thanks be to God. And we sing and we honor the one who is all sufficient. The one who yesterday, today and forever is the same. The one who paid the price for me so that I may stand before you as the son of the living God. The one who has called me by name and said you are mine. The one who has walked on water. The one who has risen from the dead. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who is in control of all things. This Jesus, he is sufficient. He has left nothing undone. He has given us all we need for life. We need to believe, friends, that nothing is left undone for us. In him there is sufficiency. He is the reason we worship God. He is the reason we are here today. Jesus sees everything we need. When we believe it, when we believe it, we can have a little and we'll be content. When we believe it, we can have a lot and we will be generous. When we believe it, even when someone gives you that look like, what are you wearing tonight? You can praise Jesus. When Jesus is sufficient, the insecurities that often lead to pray, brokenness and heartache and pain are lessened. When Jesus is enough, the church rejoices, and people find peace. So, I didn't know how it was going to go tonight because I, you know, it's, it's coming to the end of this. You can hear my voice, right? I'm feeling tired. As I was sitting there, I said, Lord, I don't feel like I have any, any energy tonight, and, and I feel like I need energy for this crowd. And you know that little voice that says, oh, you know, Stu, you got to really dig deep and try your best tonight, was confronted by the very thought that I'm offering you. It's this thought that comes to me in the form of the question, is Jesus always enough for you, Stu? Because if he is, then even in your weakness, he's your strength. Even when you're not your best, he is the best. (laughs) Listen, I used to hate failing because it would embarrass me. You know what I've come to realize? I once preached a message. i got to be honest with you. I once preached a message in front of a bunch of academics in a theological college. I was asked to come because someone gave them the notion that I'm a good preacher. (laughs) It was a busy week in my church. I came, I was not as prepared as I needed to be. I was nervous and anxious. I got up there and I blubbered my way through some text. I mean, you could hear a pin drop, and that's how my sermon dropped, boom, right to the ground. I left, and a very dear friend of mine put his arm around me as an arm of consolation. <laughs> he said, he said, oh, Stu, I love you. I didn't want to hear that. You know, oh, Stu, I love you. I appreciate your heart. You know what that means, right? That's code for, man, you really sucked, and, and I don't think they're going to have you back. But, you know, as, as I thought about that over the years, you know, I, I sighed so deeply by my disappointment because I wanted to be good. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just being honest with you. You're seeing me honest here before you. I wanted to have people look at me and think, man, that guy can do a great thing. But you know what? When Jesus becomes our sufficiency, even our failures, we can hold without it damaging us. Even the times in which we are not our best, we can live through that with confidence and faith. So I say to you, there is literally nothing now left that needs to be stripped in this preacher, because his failures has pointed him to the one who never fails. His failure has pointed him to the one who is sufficient. So I stand before you and I say, bring it on, because God is good. I stand before you because I say, listen, listen, let let me put it to you a different way. So when I lost lost my, my parents, my brother and sister, never did I think in a million years that God could raise up the man you see before you. Now be very careful. I'm not suggesting that I am the model for all holy living and righteous living. But I am saying this. I've come to believe what I preach because I've come to live in its truth. And when I look at the church, my heart breaks sometimes. I see the deficiency, the sense of want and the sense of longing. I see relationships end amongst people because... It's not that the other person is not good enough or the other person doesn't have what you need. I see it end because you've expected from them what they can never give you. And yet, it hurts even more when it happens in the church because those who are in the church have confessed that Jesus is enough. So I wonder and I ask, what do we do to believe this? How do we enter in to have the sufficiency of Jesus Christ so overwhelm our being that we do not look for what we can only find in Him elsewhere? I suggest to you tonight just some thoughts as I close. That one of the things we need to return to is what the apostle says to us, that we have to set our hearts on things above. You know, when we look to Jesus Christ, and the reason we have a cross in this sanctuary and in most Christian churches is because it wants to direct our eyes not to the insufficiency in the world, but to Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. When we come into worship, we come to look to that cross to remember the price that was paid for us. He died so that I don't need to live as a sinner, (laughs) He died to set me free. You know the scripture in here that talks about leave your past behind, get rid of it, let it die? You know what? Jesus said, I've taken care of that for you. Do you believe it? Do you have faith to believe that I've taken care of that for you so that you can live as I want you to live? When we start to set our eyes and our gaze towards the things of above, the things of God, it changes our circumstances. But the problem is that many of us place other identities in front of our identity as Christ followers. Some of us have, have said to ourselves, you know, uh, I, I, I am a I am a, I'm a Jamaican Christian. I, I I'm a I'm a, a South African Christian. Some of us have have defined our Christianity by lesser important identities. You know, when, when, when the scripture says this here, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in, is in all, I think the Apostle Paul is saying all other ways of defining yourself, when Christ becomes your sufficiency, fall down the ladder and he becomes the way in which you define yourself. You are known first as a child and daughter of the living God. When we believe this, when we believe that Jesus changes that, that he makes us his own, we see the world differently. If we don't believe this, we tend to interpret our Christianity through our cultural lenses. We tend to interpret our Christianity through our preferences. We tend to turn you know, you know why you can have a racist Christian? Because they've put their race in front of Christianity. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you and I do not get the sufficiency of Christ and who he's made us to be, then we will interpret this Christianity in God's Godless ways. People have done things in the name of the church that we should be ashamed of. They have placed other things in front of what it means to be a child of the living God and called it Christian. But we, the ones who confess the Lord as Jesus Christ, we stand before Him and we say, I am no longer South African first or Pastor Stu. You know, I, 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 I love coming here because I have a lot of wonderful teenagers from my youth group, not teenagers anymore, Um, wonderful young ladies like Renee and young men, and and they still call me Pastor Stu. Now, I appreciate that, and I know where I am. So don't get me wrong. I'm not being disrespectful. But I sometimes say to them, I was first named Stuart. It's okay. (laughs) Jesus is not going to hurl a holy dart at you if you call me by my first name. And I feel it's the same with us as Christians. We need to recognize that the identity given to us is that of child of the living God. That changes everything. It changes everything. Look, I don't trust myself enough if I think about my, my, my background is more important than who Jesus says I am. <laughs> My success is more important. My education is more important. My, my culture is more important. You see, the world can't get to this place because the world hasn't said, I've been reborn. We've been reborn. We've been given a new name. And as we look at our world, we look at it differently. You see, whatever becomes more significant than Jesus in your life is the thing you're obsessing about right now. It's a thing that occupies most of your time. It's a thing that you deeply long for. It's that thing that you will spend your resources on. And if you want to know what those things are, just think very carefully of what I just said to you. Those are the kinds of things that I think we need to confess to him tonight and to let go of. When we let go, wonderful things happen. I don't know if I quite communicated as I wanted to tonight but I think that's enough for now. <laughs> I got one good one left and all God's people says amen. amen. But this evening as I look at this congregation, people from different places. Some of you born here in this country, some of you like me an immigrant to this country. The hope of the gospel is this, that Christ is so sufficient and changes lives so much so that all of the differences we have does not stand in the way of us being one family birthed through the power of His Spirit and the sacrifice of Christ. You know why this identity thing is so important? It is important because the world today is looking to the church. Uh, Not actually, it's not looking to the church because it doesn't believe that the church has anything to offer it. But what if? What if the church becomes a place where there truly is no Jew or Gentile? Or let me say it in contemporary words. There's no Trinidadian. (laughs) Or Australian. There's no Guyanese. Or Barbadian help me out there's no one born in Scarborough and Etobicoke does that even work what if the church becomes the kind of place where the way in which the world distinguishes us no longer has power because Christ has power over us and we live true to our baptismal identity I'll tell you what happens I think people will notice. (laughs) I think the world will notice the church in ways that it hasn't yet noticed. I think we will rise up with such unity and such power that we would be a witness in a world that is grappling with what it means to try and live together in harmony. But the Spirit of God alive in the church can do it. So this evening I conclude. And I invite you to stand with me. I've preached on many themes this week, but essentially one theme has been dominant in all I've said. That is that the gospel is good news. It's not just good advice. (laughs) That is that we have a hope in Jesus Christ. I've learned, you know, when I started to preach, I used to preach on the problem so much. The problem, the problem, the problem. Listen, the problem's real. (laughs) Sin is real. Get out of it. But I spent so very little time on preaching the hope we have in Jesus. And this evening, I want to say to you, there's hope. There's hope. There's freedom. There's healing. (laughs) Church, he is good. (laughs) He is true. He is powerful. All praise to him. He's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy. Brother, is it Brother Keegan? Brother Keegan, I just love your ability and your giftedness. And when you play, you make me sound so good when I'm speaking, keep playing. But in all sincerity, it is good news tonight. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the church. Thank you for the way in which you've helped me to to find deep connection and love for the people here. Because I believe that When Jesus came, He did not just come to tell us truth. He he lived truth encased in love. He, He presented what is right because He loved those He was presenting it to. And I think that good preaching must be loving preaching always. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes truth can hurt. But tonight I pray that wherever conviction is given... And wherever conviction comes, we would understand it to be coming from the grace of God and the love of God for His church. So I pray for those amongst us tonight, those who are loving things in inordinate ways, those who are searching for what you already can provide for them in people or in things. And I pray this evening that they would come to sufficiency, contentment, peace, and wholeness in you. I pray, Father, that they would place again the priority not on others but on you. That they would turn to you as the author and the perfecter of their faith. That they would turn to you in this very moment and say, Christ, let me return to what matters most. So that I would be reminded, transformed, changed, and given hopeful life. So that I would be discerning of what? I am to do so as your sweet spirit has been ministering to us I pray that you would now invite us by our name to bow before you and to worship you to pray to you and to ask of you the good things that we know you have for us to pray as those who have assurance that when children come before a loving God He will not withhold from them His very best will for their lives. May tonight surrender and your will meet at this altar. May tonight deep longings be met by the Spirit of the living God. May tonight wounds be healed, hope restored, grace sufficient in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.